Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians as we continue in our series in uh, this book, Ordinary People, Much Affliction, Great Joy, Contagious Faith. Um, I want to just do a little bit of review because uh, chapter 2 is, is interesting to me as, as I studied it this week. Um, in one sense, uh, Paul is taking some time in chapter one to remind them of how they received the gospel. And we get to chapter two, it kind of seems like more of the same. So the question for interpretation for me this week was not just simply what Paul is saying, but why, why is Paul emphasizing this in the letter? So you remember Paul is traveling on a second missionary journey. He's trying to go into Asia. God keeps closing the doors there. Paul has a vision uh, of a man saying, come to Macedonia. And Macedonia. So he goes over to Macedonia uh, at first, he ends up in Philippi, and in Philippi, he leads some ladies to Christ, uh, and uh, very affluent ladies, and he begins a ministry there, and he is going, you know, in a sense, street evangelism, sharing Christ with people, and uh, there is this demon-possessed slave girl that is following Paul around, heckling him. Now, in Philippi, when you read the story, she's saying, this is, he's preaching the true God, and it sounds like she's like praising, but it actually says in the text that Paul got annoyed with her. And so Paul turns around, and he, he casts the demon out, which is a wonderful thing, but the guys that own this slave girl, who used her for making money by, she, you know, kind of predicted futures and did all this different, you know, stuff, fortune-telling, they get mad. They complained to the leaders. The leaders of the city beat Paul and his companions with rods, and they throw him in prison. When Paul's in prison, it says that he and his companions were singing worship songs and praising God, and there was an earthquake, and the doors of the cell open up, and the guard who thought he had lost the people he was supposed to be guarding and he was going to be murdered for doing that begins to take his sword out. Paul says, hey, we're right here. And so this guy's amazed by them. He takes them into his own personal home, cleans them up, and his whole household comes to faith. In the morning, the leaders, kind of hearing about all that's going on, say, hey, why don't you tell Paul and his companions to leave? And Paul says, well, wait a second here. We're Roman citizens, and you beat us without a trial. We want an apology. <laughs> oh, Paul. So they apologize and say, get out of town. <laughs> And then Paul kind of has the same kind of uh, reception, if you will, in Thessalonica, right? There's problems, and he's rushed out because of this. And Paul hears about the faith that's going on in this region. He writes this letter to the Thessalonians, and he reminds them, says, I know you came to faith because I see your faith and your hope, or your love and your hope. And here's how last week we looked at how the, uh, how the, the gospel came to them, how they received it, and how it went out. And then Paul continues in chapter 2, and he says this. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, that's why I just kind of remind you of that, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error, or impurity, or any attempt, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, 
not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like nursing mothers taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses of God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what Paul is saying here is fairly clear. Paul is talking about how the message was presented effectively, uh, how it, the motive for presenting the message was pure, and uh, the means, the way that they presented the message was uh, gently. And, and we, we're going to go over those. But as I was looking at this, my thought was, why is Paul kind of belaboring this point of how the gospel came to them? He's already said, man, your faith and your hope and your love is extraordinary. The gospel is going out. Why does he keep going back to the foundations? And I think there's two reasons. They're not on your notes there. But in some sense, when we think about how the gospel came to us, how Christ brought us into relationship with him, whether it was through church, whether it was through individual, whether it was through our family, however that gospel came to you, when we look back at it, we celebrate what God has done. And it reminds us, wow, God brought, really has brought me a long way. And that, rem that reminder of what God has done also is something that we think about as something that needs to be um, repeated. If God did this here, then, then what is God asking us to do so that it goes forward, so that it goes on? And so when Paul talks about the message coming, he's talking about the means of how we share the gospel. And specifically, we're going to talk about elders and leaders a little bit, how they do that, and then also how the congregation responds. So yesterday... Uh, the elders uh, met for uh, several hours. It's kind of a day planning thing to talk about uh, the assessment and how we move forward and all these different things. And we had this, this whole day planning. And as happens with, you know, a group of guys that, that get together, I mean, there was also, you know, snacks. And there was um, just kind of chatting. And before we got started, we were just kind of chatting. And somehow we got on, I don't even remember how, but we got on, we were talking about rings. Oh, there was a mention of a safety deposit box, and maybe it had a ring at one point in time. And then Fred told a story about a ring he had found on the street. And then he tells another story that I had never heard before. Some of you have heard this story. It's about his dad, Grant. Fred, will you come up here for, for a second? Um, and I just, I asked him this morning if he would tell the story. It's about, it's about part of the history of our church. And so uh, I would like Fred to tell the story of the ring. Come on up here.
So this is somewhat impromptu since uh, this was a morning decision. Um, and I'm not sure if any of you have heard. I prefer the game, game time decision. It was game a game time, time decision. decision. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay, game time decision. Uh, I'm not sure how many, if any of you have heard this story, but uh, I heard it enough times that I remember it growing up. The story predates this building being here. Uh, it's possible it could predate me, although I think I may have been around when it actually happened. Uh, this story I heard multiple times from my father, who uh, came to this church shortly after World War II. But uh, being a community guy walking around the community one day, he happened to see on the ground a diamond ring. And it appeared to be a ring of some value, and this was somewhere in the streets outside the church. Not knowing what else to do with this ring and how to connect it with its rightful owner, uh, he brought it into the church and delivered it to the church secretary at the time uh, for safekeeping, just in case the owner you know, wandered around and wondered if it had been located. Uh, it did turn out that the owner did it do exactly that, come back to the church and wonder if somebody had found a ring. Uh, it was a ring of some value, both personal and intrinsic value, to uh, the lady. I believe it was either her engagement or wedding ring. And she was very happy to uh, be reconnected with her ring. At that point, the story was just, you know, a glad story of lost and found. Uh, but coincidentally, the lady who owned the ring also owned the house that sits on the property where this building currently sits today. And subsequently, when she made the decision when they were going to sell this house, um, she came to the church with first option and said, would you be interested in purchasing the home for expansion? And the church eventually did, in fact, do that, and this building was constructed on that site. So that's the story as it was delivered to me. First important. I, I, how many of you have heard that story? I'm not, yeah, not just now, thank you. We only, got, we only got two hands, and one of them was related to you, Fred. So I was, yeah, it was, it was just kind of an amazing story. I had not heard that before. Now, again, I said the reason why I think Paul is, is telling these stories over again is because they're, they're to be celebrated, aren't they? That's, a, that's kind of a, a neat story of how God worked. That should be celebrated and remembered. Um, but also, it says something about what God was thinking about and saying that, like a church here and how he moved. And sometimes we kind of think, you know, we're getting old and, you know, maybe we're the last. God had a plan moving way before most of us were here. And we are entrusted with what he began here. So looking this morning at the text, uh, how the gospel was presented uh, the motive, and the means. Uh, the message was presented effectively. He says uh, in verse 1 that their coming was not in vain. Uh, in vain means it wasn't empty. The message was, it filled them up. It, or we can say it wasn't ineffective. So the gospel presented that, that came to the church uh, did not disappoint. It was effective. It filled them up. And specifically, Paul says that message came with boldness. 
Now, there's no doubt in my mind, reading through Acts and hearing the stories of the Apostle Paul, that he was bold. Yet there's other times where he talks about himself as not being a great speaker or being meek and mild among them. But, but Paul says, look, here he says, the message came with boldness. And if you just got beaten and pushed out of town and come to the next town, you might have think maybe it's like, let's try something different. Let's be secretive this time. But Paul's not that way. He is bold. And I believe the reason that Paul is bold is because of his conviction. And sometimes when we think of our own boldness of sharing Christ, the reason that maybe we're not as bold as we should be is because we're not convinced of it ourselves. You cannot present that which you do not possess. You can't present the gospel if you're not in possession of it. So Paul is bold because of his conviction. And second, Paul is bold because of his calling. There's a really important aspect here in the life of Paul. Paul had a life goal. (laughs) Early on in his Pharisee job, and that was to destroy the church. And God came to him and said, you know what? You, not only are you going to be my disciple, you are going to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, it is very clear that Paul would have rather heard from God, you are going to be my proclamation to the Jews. God's kind of saying, you know what? I already got Peter on that one. I need somebody on the Gentiles. And if you were a Jewish Man, at that point in time, that was not a great assignment. Now, Paul's heart obviously has changed. But he was called by God to be a minister to the Gentiles. Then he is called, Paul is operating on this assurance that God is working. And the fact that sometimes he endures difficulty does not persuade him from his calling. Now, I want you to hear this. Just because ministry gets difficult, Just because at times our marriage is difficult. Just because at times our parenting is difficult. It does not mean that you are on the wrong track. God God has already moved. He's already declared something. He does not guarantee a smooth, easy road. In fact, what I believe Paul is saying in chapter 2 as we continue on next week is really what he is saying is you are participating in the life of Jesus through your sufferings. You're participating in his life. So Paul has a conviction, he has a calling, and Paul has a real concern. He has a real concern that people hear and have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So the message is presented effectively, it comes with boldness, and second, it comes in the midst of conflict. And so that's why I put this as part of our banner. It's ordinary people. It's much conflict. You can't remove that. One person wrote this, false teachers assailed Paul as they often do uh, other faithful shepherds by him questioning his character and challenging his authority. They hope to ruin the new church by destroying its confidence in the person that God had used to form it. They're trying to say that's what Satan is doing in this process. So the gospel was done effectively because of boldness, even in the midst of conflict. 
and it was done without error. So he says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated, Philippi, as you know, we had boldness and we declared to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There it is. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. So without error, why is it important that the Bible is and the gospel is without error? The gospel's purity is important because, first of all, it's necessary for salvation. Paul says in Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The the gospel is necessary for salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. And so that's why it needs to remain pure. It's also necessary for the believer's growth. Now, you can go back and and read uh, chapter 1 of of Romans. We don't need to turn there right now. But in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul is talking with uh, the church, kind of introductory, and he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed all over the world. Man, I've heard about your faith. Paul was wanting to go to Rome. He had not been there. There was already a church established in Rome. And he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in in Rome. And and you say, wait a second. Why are you eager to preach the gospel? They're already in the faith. There's already a church there. And there's a couple reasons Paul reveals. There's there's obviously still a harvest there. There's other people. Uh, He mentions that in verse 13. But he ends, uh, he says also in verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other. We need to keep coming back to the gospel. And that gospel encourages us. And just a reminder that all of us, all of us are sinners. We are separated from God. There is nothing in us worthy of being saved. We don't do anything to push God to that level to save us. But God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. There's this process of God coming after us. He provides the means. We repent. We follow him. All that to say, we keep coming back to that because we are still sinners who are saved, who God loves, and he is reconciling and growing us in the faith. Like We're all in that process. And so we're encouraged by that when we talk to one another. And because of this, it motivates us towards holy living. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it says this in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there's a long list in the end of chapter 4 there in Ephesians where Paul says, this is what it means to walk in a worthy manner. Uh, you're kind, you're tenderhearted. There's something that happens when we come in the faith that we grow and become more like Christ. And that's shown in how we treat one another. But he also says in that verse, as it says there, um, forgiving one another. So it also motivates us to reconcile. And, and, that's, and that's what the gospel is continually doing in the church. So Paul says, look, this, this gospel... This this was presented with boldness, and it was in the midst of conflict, and it was without error, 
And I, I was a little confusing here, and I, you know, I write these sermons, and then I kind of reread them uh, on Sunday morning. I wish I would have used a different word here or before, but it's also without impurity. So what I said is without error, and then I said as my sub-point there why the gospel purity is important, and that's true. But Paul uses two different words here. He uses error and impurity. And why does Paul use, I mean, why didn't he just say error? Why didn't he just say pure? He, he says it for a reason. He's inspired. And so he said, it came without error. Our gospel needs to be without error. And I believe the impurity here is talking about sexual purity. It didn't come, the gospel wasn't presented in a way that had any kind of sexual impurity. And you go, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But do a little study on cults sometime. It's amazing how many times when somebody has a false gospel, it involves sexual immorality. And in the point, even in, in Paul's day, in these idol-worshiping things that were going on in Macedonia and in Asia and in Judea and Jamaica, all these false worship, they had a lot of sexual immorality in them. Paul said, that's not the way this gospel came. It was contrary to the culture. And so it was pure. And Paul is going to move into that uh, in chapter 3, and so he is setting the stage for that. Um, and then fifth, it, it, there, was, there was an attempt to deceive. He says in verse three, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. That's how the gospel message was presented effectively. Bold, midst of conflict, without error. It was uh, without impurity and it was, had no attempt to deceive. Next, his motives was pure. Paul says in verse four, but just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospels that we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery. Look, our, our motive was pure. It didn't, it didn't come with flattery. It's not a, a term I use that often, but I've always, I always like this. Uh, somebody, I don't even remember where I read it. Gossip is saying something behind somebody's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is saying something to somebody's face you wouldn't say behind their back. Okay? Um, we, uh, we were watching our, our grandkids uh, last night, and uh, our kids went out, and... You know, uh, man, it's amazing when the sin nature starts. It's at birth. Um, and you don't have to teach kids to try to butter up their grandparents. They just kind of know it. You know, and so oftentimes I want to watch, which means Leah wants to watch a show, would start with the sentence, Papa, pa, I love you. I want to watch. Okay, so look, Paul says that's not what we did. We weren't buttering you up. Okay. Second, it was without greed. Paul wasn't trying to gain anything. Um, and so look, this is no different than any other times. There's people that were trying to profit off the gospel, trying to profit off of different religions. And uh, it's just amazing how quickly that happens. Um, and so Paul, to make sure that the people understood that he wasn't out there trying to get money, says, look, as an apostle, I had the right to demand things. But I didn't. I worked day and night to provide for my own things. 
because he wanted them to know that his motive was pure. And then he wasn't seeking glory from people. He wasn't seeking glory from people. Look at it. We are all tempted in different ways, but when somebody is a public speaker, when somebody is a leader, it can be tempting uh, to want to have those people like you and say things. And so the temptation is to keep saying things and doing things that they like so as not to cause any problems. And Paul says, look, we weren't seeking glory from you. And then, finally, his means was gentle. Um, so he says, verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is describing the way in which he did ministry in Thessalonica. And so I've called this elder responsibilities. Here's how an elder, a teacher, a pastor is to operate, according to Paul, just in this short, I'm sure this isn't an exhaustive list, although we're going to look at a few other passages. And in saying that, if I'm going to say, look, I'm preaching to the elders and the past elders and pastors, if I'm, I'm preaching to you, uh, in fairness, I'm, I'm going to also preach to the rest of us, the rest of the group, and say, so then what is the, the church responsibilities? So I've broken this up in two parts. We're going to do the elder responsibilities and the church responsibilities. And I, I want to remind you that I prepare my sermon topics way in advance. And so this is not in response to anything that I know of. This is just where we are in the passage right now. And so when we look at Paul, we go, man, talk about a perfect pastor. Man, that guy was awesome. Where do we hire him? And I recognize as I give this list in a minute that I am not the perfect pastor. I appreciate that some of you love me very much. And some of you, if you had the opportunity, would lynch me after church if you got the chance. Um, no, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but um, what is the perfect pastor? I found a list and a way to get a perfect pastor online. I'm sure it's true. Here it is. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sound roundly, but never hurts anybody's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. The perfect pastor is 29 years old and has 40 years experience. Above all, he is handsome. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends most of his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. The perfect pastor always has time for church council and all its committees, and never misses the meeting of any church organization. 
and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always in the church next door. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you'll receive 1,643 pastors and one of them should be perfect. Gosh, even my mom laughed when I said the pastor's handsome. <laughs> um, elder responsibilities. Character. In chapter 1, verse 5, uh, he says, Because of their gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, full of conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be. That's character. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. Timothy and Titus list the, the, the responsibilities, the characteristics of an elder. So first of all, an elder, a pastor, needs to have character. Second, it's the responsibility of the elders and pastors to model and to mentor people in the church. Chapter 1, verse 6, and you became imitators of us. That's the role of the leaders, to model, to mentor. Third, it's to protect the gospel. Not mentioned here, but the context of Paul's talking about the purity of the gospel shows that he's protecting it. The elder responsibility, the pastor's responsibility is to be purposeful. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming was not in vain. It wasn't empty. It had a purpose. It had a plan. Uh, he filled us up. The elder, the pastor, needs to endure. Now, I, I would rather skip this one personally, but it's here in the text. came with much conflict. I would like to say, people love to remind me, see, Dave, there's always been conflict in the church. The conflict that we're talking about primarily came from non-believers. So uh, don't like, it's not a goal. Uh, we must be doing something right. There's conflict. Uh, no, that's not always the case. Okay? But look, there, there was conflict and, and, and Paul had to keep enduring. Uh, it's important for the pastor and elders to be bold. I love this, I mean, obviously this was meant tongue-in-cheek, although I think some of you took it seriously. Um, he condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. Okay, look, there's, there's a point of being bold. Sometimes people say, well, I feel like you're, you're, you're saying that right to me. Okay, I'm not watching you during the week. If, if you're feeling, that might be the Holy Spirit, and you should respond to it, but... We need to be bold. I, I say all the time here, it's, I'm about to step on your toes. One church I was at, I, I guess I said that one too many times, and he goes, I don't feel like it's a toe thing, and he brought me a hard hat. He goes, this is what we need to start passing out around here. And I, I don't, I, I hope that I'm bold enough with the text that we're looking at, and I, there's part of me that wants to, maybe I need to back off a little, I just not my personality, I just get to these things and I kind of hammer them. Um, and so we need to be bold. But then at the same time, he says we're gentle 
we were like, we were like nursing mothers. What a, what a picture that Paul uses for gentleness. We, we were like nursing mothers with you, gentle. Now, I would say as, as a dad of three that, and, and maybe you disagree with me, but there's just a way that you pick up the firstborn and the way you pick up the second and third. And you just kind of, just that first time you're like, oh, they're going to break, oh no. And then later on, you're just kind of like, let's go, you know, come on. And, uh, it, and so I think, I think Paul is kind of given the first picture here, okay? There's just this way of gentleness and nourishment. It's just a beautiful picture. And in that, he is saying, look, we were loving, being affectionately desirous of you. What a, what a beautiful picture there. We were loving towards you. And then Paul, Paul mentions here that they were hardworking. Now, Paul purposely chose to be hardworking outside of money that was taken into the church so that the gospel wouldn't be questioned. But the idea here is that elders and pastors should be hardworking. And Paul argues elsewhere that, that, that pastors should be paid from the fruit of, of the labors that they're doing. In fact, he, he mentions to Timothy, double honor. And so he's, he's, not, he's not opposed to pastors getting paid, but he does want pastors to be what? Hard working. And then, and I'll just say something as, a, as somebody who's been in ministry now for a while, there's been a pendulum swing that we're seeing uh, with pastoral ministry. And I work with people that we're training up and the pendulum was kind of like this. We had pastors that were working way too many hours and not spending enough time with their family. And so seminaries were like, this is not correct. You need to be with your families. You need to do these things. And what we're seeing now is we're, we're, we need to tell guys how many hours a week they need to work. It's like, hey, it's really great that you're with your family. You also have a job. And so this pendulum swings. And so hardworking with family, with ministry. I think it's really important there. Uh, I'm sorry, that's, I'm just off on my own tangents now. And then finally, encouraging and exhorting. So he mentioned mom, and then he goes on in verse 12 and says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a worthy manner who calls you into his king, kingdom. And he, and he says, I'm sorry, in verse 11, for we know, like a father, we exhorted you. Like a father, we encouraged you. Like a father, we charged you. Now, I'm just sorry, but I used, for me, there's something different about a dad exhorting and a mom exhorting in the language here, what Paul is saying. And you have to understand, Paul is writing at a time um, where if you were a boy growing up in your father's household, Almost every single time, with, with, with few exceptions, if your dad was a tent maker, you were a tent maker. If your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your dad was, if your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. And so the dad not only just encouraged the kids to be hardworking and, you know, fine, the dad was showing them all that he did. He was discipling them in all the ways of the household. And that's how the dad treated his sons. And so encourage and exhort. And I'll just say that 
It's one thing when I say, hey, your pastor needs to be loving. Mm, Amen. Your pastor needs to encourage, exhort, charge. Eh, I don't know that that's what Paul meant. So what are the responsibilities of the church? And I just want to challenge you. If we are going to hold pastors and elders to the first Timothy and Titus passage, the second Timothy and Titus passages of what it means to be an elder and what it means to be a pastor. Okay, I 10 years ago was going through a process of, of candidating with you, and the church was asking all sorts of questions. What's your calling? When did you feel called? What do you believe about this? You, you know, do you how do you hold up to this character and that character? And there was there was meetings, and that's rightful. And if we're going to do that, then we also need to look at the other verses about what it says, how the church is supposed to be responding. So we're going to hold some interviews. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> look over, turn over a page or so in your Bibles to chapter 5, verse 12. This is where we'll be heading, but we're just kind of introducing it. So Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. So he says, look, I want you to respect the leaders that God has placed over you. Respect them. Second, not only that, you're supposed to esteem them. I didn't do a word study there or anything. I'm not gonna define that for you. Uh, But you you can look into that. What does it mean to esteem? Now, I think this is purposeful here. Sometimes it seems like Paul is just jumping around topics. Look at this, verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. You want to know how you respect and esteem your leaders? Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. That's purposeful there. That's inspired. That's there for a reason. Paul isn't having random thoughts. It's not Paul going, oh, look, a squirrel, writing something else down. Respect, esteem, be at peace. Now, the other passage I want to point out to you, uh, uh, another passage from Hebrews chapter 13 I have one of them on the overhead, but the other one I realized I didn't. But in Hebrews chapter 13, Paul addresses those. You can go home and read this as part of your extra devotional uh, today if you want. But in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay, and so remember. Uh, In fact, the... The Greek there is a continual. It's not just, oh, I remember that. It's to continually remember them. How do we continually remember our leaders? Prayer. Thank you. That's yeah, one great way to do that. We continually remember them by praying for them. Okay, so that's, that's one way. I think there's other ways, but that's definitely part of what he is saying there. And he says to imitate them. Um, look, follow parts of it. Now, I would say for any leader, and Paul included. Look, there's some things you want to say, hey, that's something I'm going to model and that's something that I'm going to find another model for. But we're looking at our leaders and we're taking the best of them and we're imitating them. Then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, 
This I do have on the overhead. He says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, let me just say a few things about this verse. Uh, It says that we are to obey the leaders and submit to them. Those are hard words. I had you write those in your notes because they're hard ones. Um, Those aren't words that we like in our society and our culture. Obey and submit. And I think Paul recognizes that. So he says to you, hold on a second. Yeah, you're supposed to obey and submit to your leaders. But let me remind the leaders, listen to this. For they are keeping watch over your souls. For they are keeping watch over your souls. And I'll just say, that verse has caused me to lose some sleep occasionally. Elders. For you are keeping watch over their souls as those who will give an account. Here's your responsibility, and you will stand before God and give an account for it. Imitate them, obey them, submit to them. And I've always loved the last part of this verse. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. Now, you say, well, that's their choice. They need to choose their attitude. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that the church responds in such a way that either makes it joyful or makes it a groaning. And he specifically says again, uh, this would be of no advantage to you if they're not enjoying their job. Make it a joy. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, uh, 17 and 18, it talks about supporting the ministry. Um, and also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it talks about when we need to correct an elder or pastor. But these, are, these are not exhaustive lists. They're difficult lists. And I, I could tell you, I, I, could, I could shy away from this. And I can say, I can say um, look, uh, Paul was gentle and we should be gentle. Um, But as I looked at this, I went deeper. He's really talking about what it means to be an elder or pastor. And so I'm I'm willing to list that and say that I'm a work in progress. But if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to be honest, then what's the church's response? And I, I wrestled with keeping this section off the notes. Because now you know, somebody will say to me occasionally, well, now you're meddling. <laughs> right now, now you're poking at us a little bit. Look, this is, this is what Scripture says, and all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And so if this is what the elder needs to be, then this is what the church needs to be. So what's the application and action? The message that's presented in 1 Thessalonians in at least three ways. The words of the gospel must be true. And I think more and more we're challenged in this aspect of keeping the gospel pure. Uh, there's an organization called Nine Marks, and they've wrote this, uh, these series of books on what it means to have a healthy church. And one of the first ones they wrote was on the gospel. And so the guy that's writing the book, just for fun, goes out and asks a bunch of pastors and leaders, tell me what the gospel is. He said, first problem we have is that nobody is agreeing on what the gospel is. 
And so, look, we have to keep the gospel as the center. And, and if you're, you know, if you're listening uh, sometimes on Sunday mornings, I, you're not going to get through too many of my messages without hearing the gospel. Um, in fact, usually, I don't have it here today because I thought it was pretty clear in there, but usually I have marked in my notes and right off to the side, gospel. Okay, here's where you need to hit the gospel, Dave. And sometimes I'll mark, here's where we can refer to our scripture reading. Let's remind people to be in scripture. And then, you know, if there's a vision place where we can highlight vision, which we did today with Fred sharing a little bit about his dad. And finally, we try to highlight those things. But always, I mean, there's probably some exceptions. But for me, I want to make sure that we hit the gospel on Sunday morning. And folks, if that's not a foundation for us as a church, if it's about something else, why does Paul spend two chapters on this topic? Because it's that important, okay? So we need to stay centered on the gospel. It must be true. What we're saying needs to be true from God's word. And second, if the gospel is true, then the people of the gospel must be holy. Where Paul is leading this is that the gospel should change us in such a way that we're different. And I, I, I get that we are wrestling with so many things and how it means to apply the gospel in the society and culture that we live in. But please understand that we live in an upside down world and our embodiment of the gospel should be different than how a non-Christian views what our world should look like. And so it needs to be, our, our conduct must be holy. Paul said, look, I didn't come to you like those other guys that try to get money from you or involved in sexual immorality. No, I, I came with, I came with a true and, and, and pure gospel. So the people of God must be holy. And the means of the gospel, the means of it, needs to be pure. It needs to have the right motives. Why do we, why do we talk about growing as a church or sharing the gospel Listen, if we grew as a church, yes, there would be more resources to give to missions and staffing and ministry, take care of our facilities. There's just, a, there's just a natural part of that, more people, more money, more abilities. But the reason that we're telling you that we should share the gospel and befriend and love God and love our, our, our neighbors and, and make disciples is because we have a conviction that this is the only way that people can spend eternity with God. That without Jesus Christ, people are eternally separated from God. And so if I, I have that conviction, I have to share it. God has something better for you. He had a plan from the beginning. It matters. And so that's why we ask you to share it, because we're convicted. And because the Bible says, go make disciples. There's all sorts of things that we can do. We can, we can feed the homeless we can house people, we can get involved in politics. I mean, all the different things that people love to do is great. But just remind you that the thing that overarching that Jesus commanded us to do was to make disciples. We have a calling. And, and I think that we all should have a deep concern for God's creation. And that concern should drive us to want to share it with other people.
Somehow that's what kept Paul going. And I, I can see that in the life of Paul. It's encouraging to me. Um, I've never been beaten by rods. I've never been thrown into prison. Um, I've never been stoned. I've never been shipwrecked. I've been plane stranded, but never shipwrecked. These, Paul kept going, and I, I praise that. Now, I've endured times of church conflict where between you and me, there's times when I drove home and it said, Lord, I'm done. That's good. I don't want to fight with people anymore. And so we have a responsibility to keep going in the gospel. The message was presented effectively. It was done with pure motives, and it was done gently. May we do the same. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I was uh, nervous about this message. It's difficult. So I pray that you would take the words that are true and right and that you would place them in our hearts. In any words that were said in the wrong way, God, that you would just remove them, that we would uh, take the gospel and, and make it a center port of our life. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling. Um, in their faith, in their relationship with the church, in their relationship with others, Lord, that there would be healing and reconciliation. Pray that, God, we would uh, honor you in what we do. Thank you for your word and the encouragement from it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.